Good morning. Happy Easter. He is risen, and you say, he is risen indeed. I'm going to explain to you why they said that back in the day, a little bit today. Well, there's a lot to celebrate this morning in Easter, and we're going to get to that, but I've, I've been celebrating all week. I had the unique privilege of getting to spend several days with the person who matters the most to me in this world, and we got to celebrate 25 years of being married this past week. Um, you know, much to be thankful for. I'm, I'm standing here just remembering how many of you were at my wedding when Gina and I got married 25 years ago. And that's a unique privilege to be 25 years removed from your wedding and to be able to look around and see quite a bit of the guest list is still here and we are still walking together and enjoying God together. And so what a privilege that has been. But of all the blessings of the last 25 years, and we were just recounting how full our lives have been for these 25 years, uh, there has been no greater gift in my life than the woman sitting right there in the front row to me. So, baby, thank you so much for 25 wonderful years. Um, well, this morning, we, we celebrate something that we all share in common, no matter what age it is that we are. When we come to Easter, Easter ventures into this category of life that whether you're seven or eight years old, whether you're a teenager, whether you're a single person, whether you are uh, a senior citizen, no matter who you are, Easter ventures into this territory that touches our lives. And so we, we have in common this desperate need for what Easter presents to us because the subject of death is a subject that touches every one of our lives. And, and interestingly, it doesn't just touch your life at the very end when you're facing death or you're, so to speak, at death's doorstep. Death touches our lives throughout our lives, right? At, at some point, I can remember being a you know, young person, I guess I was probably in my teen years when I began to notice relatives that mattered to me were leaving because of death. Grandparents were dying. And so you can be a young person and death just reaches into your world and, and sort of snatches someone that matters to you out of your world. And then you get older and that snatching continues to happen and the, and the landscape changes and the people that were part of all the scenery of your life that brought meaning and value to who you were as a person, death begins to touch those various things. And, and death has this weird way of touching the stuff that you're involved with, not just the people, but the stuff you're involved with, because it's got this clock ticking element in the background of it. Every one of us knows that the clock is ticking. Your, your, death, clock, your death clock is ticking this morning, and if it got quiet enough, you can hear it. And no matter what you're involved with doing, you could be 
You could just be getting married. You could just be having children. You could be building a business. You could be on some adventure personally that you've been looking forward to all these years. But faintly in the background, this death clock ticks. And it puts this shadow over whatever it is that's in your life. And it sort of lets you know this thing right there that means so much to you, it's temporary. Death, if it were a person, says one day I will come and I will remove you from that or I will remove that from you. But I can promise you one thing, it's not permanent. And so you have this, you know, this is common to all of us. And you may not have thought about this in the past week or maybe you did. Or maybe you think about it as a teenager because you're a teenager and you think about it like, oh, that's so far off and, you know, no big deal. And, but there's this thing in our life that the resurrection uniquely addresses. If, if this were a science fiction movie, death would be this black hole in the universe that everything science is telling us is moving toward it. And at some point, this mysterious black hole is going to swallow up everything. And no one knows what's behind it. Right? That's how black holes are, right? At least the movies I watch. Like, it's just a black hole. No one knows what's inside the black hole. It's mysterious. Well, into this mysterious black hole, the God of the universe went in. And then he came back out. He's the only one who's done it. So there's something unique about Easter that the God of the universe put himself into a human capsule and was shot inside the black hole and just <gasps> this gasp for a moment. He's gone where no one's gone and where no one comes back from. And then Easter morning, he shot back into his created world and said, I'm back. And he accomplished something there that means something to every one of us. As a matter of fact, it means more to us than anything and everything in our lives. But I'm gonna pick up on a theme that we've been visiting as we started this year, the theme of awareness. So I know we lived in the Lord's Prayer and we talked about the awareness, that, that there's things that we wanna be aware of in this life. And there's there's just a fact. There's only so much space inside of our heads. And more importantly, there's only so much space in our hearts where things can matter and we celebrate things. We depend upon things. We put our hope in things. There's only limited real estate in your heart. You're only doing that with so many things. But you have a limited capacity. And you can fill that capacity up with all kinds of stuff. And even though this week, right, it's been this week dedicated to Easter. We we're leading up to it. You know, the Lenten season that began 40 days ago and it's leading up to this moment where we face this Easter celebration. But, but even that news is, has been pushed and crowded out by other stuff, hasn't it? I mean, how much time have you really had to spend about the, thinking about the resurrection this week and contemplating it deeply? Contemplating it so deeply that what it has to say about your life shoved something else aside. Something that was troubling you. Something you're worried about. Easter kind of popped in there and said, hey, 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 move over. You're not that important. Something I thought was so gripping and so important. Right, we've had news headlines again this week. I was very tempted to deal with, with this evil in this world. 
how Easter swallows up evil. It does. We've got more news this week of, of just terrorism and far reaches of the world and meaningless murders right here at East Jefferson Hospital in our own community. And then, you know, whatever else that you had to give your thoughts to this week. You know, of course, presidential politics. Make sure you pay attention to that. <clears throat> Easter eggs, Easter baskets, Easter candy. Even good stuff, right? Easter meals. You're going to get together with your family today, I hope, and have an Easter meal together. And all that stuff crowds in for limited brain space and shoves something else aside to do it. And, and unfortunately, it may be shoving aside things like the resurrection. And how stinking important the resurrection is that I'm aware of it in a way that matters. And so I want us to do this. Turn, turn to 2 Timothy with me this morning. I want to put the resurrection back in the headlines of our hearts this morning. And I want us to be aware of something as we read this passage, that losing sight of what matters the most and things that are most important to our lives is not a modern problem, even though, you know, I know I'm an information age monger and I'm always bashing the information age, but there were problems in the first century here with whether or not people would know the right stuff. There's stuff available for you to know. You can be, you can major in certain stuff and certain information. There's lots of it available today. And there was information available then. And, and the stuff that was most important to know was getting pushed aside for other things back then too. And it's being done that way for us. And so here we have in this passage, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, if you know your geography here in the Bible, it's, it's among the last letters that are going to be written in the New Testament. So this is, so we're kind of wrapping things up here in terms of the scripture addressing our lives. The great apostle Paul, perhaps one of the wisest men who ever lived, who saw life and saw God and saw the teachings that mattered the most, is having a conversation with a young man named Timothy. He's a pastor in a church in Ephesus. And 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy are, are the Apostle Paul giving parting words to him. This is wise things. Timothy, you need to know this for the good of everybody who's following you and you're leading and caring for. So that's what we have here. And, and he's going to speak of the resurrection here in a particular way. And I just want us to catch the way in which Paul highlights resurrection information amongst a lot of other information. Because right? we have that challenge before us as well. So let's, let's just read quickly here a few thoughts through chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, beginning in verse 1. He says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And then he's going to chase a little parentheses here. He says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And then he uses an illustration of an athlete and of a farmer. And he basically says, look, what you have to impart to others, this, this body of information that you have to impart to others, it's, it's going to be difficult for you to do that. It's going to be hard work. You're only going to do it if you're diligent. You know, the kind of diligence that, that an athlete has when he trains for the Olympics. 
The kind of diligence that a farmer has, that he stays at it and works and works. You know, because I know the way the soldier gets involved in serving and going to war, and he doesn't get entangled in distractions, right? This is, this is a highlighting of what, what the Christian life feels like to really value the right things and impart it to others, right? This, this, is, this is a helpful word. I don't, I, don't think, I don't think the word effort is in the Christian language enough anymore. It's like, I mean, I understand I'm going to highlight the grace of God today, but there is a dimension of our life that involves effort. It involves living like, I'm going, to, I'm going to spend myself on that right there. That value is so high to me. I'm going to spend myself on that. Well, that's what he highlights here. And look at verse 8. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I'm suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. If we died with him, we will also live with him. Well, Lord, help us to have ears that can hear this morning and eyes that can see things that only the Spirit can show to us. Lord, be in this meeting with us. Let us walk from here more aware of the resurrection, more informed and affected by it than perhaps ever. In Jesus' name, amen. Just draw our attention to this word, remember, here. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. It's kind of a unique little family of words here. I can't even pronounce them, quite honestly, uh, in the Greek. And they're used all over Timothy. Timothy likes to use, or Paul liked to use this word, remember and remind them. They're all from the same family of words. It's actually from the family of words from which we get the word amnesia. Right, so it's kind of it's funny to pronounce. You pull the A off of amnesia, and that's, that's the family of words. It starts with M-N-E. So that's why I can't pronounce it. But amnesia, right, like atheist is the, sort of the opposite of theist. The atheist. Amnesia is the opposite of amnesia. Amnesia has to do with knowing something and having your mind full of it. Right? The word actually means to, to remember, to call to mind, to call it to mind. Come, come back here. And get inside my head, bear in mind, to exercise memory, to be mindful of something. In other words, to have your mind full of this, is what Paul says. Remember, have your mind full of Jesus Christ risen from the dead, Timothy. Fill your mind with that. Now, one of the uh, commentators says this, Paul was not reminding Timothy, nor did he need to, that Christ was raised from the dead. What was needful for him was to remember, to keep in mind the one who rose, the source and supplier of all his requirements. So what was true for Timothy, Timothy is a seasoned Christian. Timothy knows God. Timothy's walked with God for a long time through some difficult seasons. But yet he's having to be told by the Apostle Paul, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Remember that. And I don't think Timothy's going, oh, wow, uh, didn't know that. That's, that's, that's news breaking. What? He's risen from the dead? Okay, nobody expects that to be Timothy's response. But what Timothy needed 
we need. A mind that is full of, a mind that is aware, a calling to mind. Because, you know, the resurrection can become information that's in the room with me, but it's way over there. You know, the information that's real close to me is whatever Donald Trump said yesterday, right? That's really close. And if I bump into you today, I might talk to you about that because that's really close. Now, today's Resurrection Sunday, right? So today is when the church began, well, not really began. They had a practice of this in the first century of doing exactly this verse, of being mindful of the resurrection. He is risen. He is risen indeed. What were they doing? They were filling their mind with an awareness that the story of our life is yoked to another story. And that story defeated death and came back from the grave and was empowered by God to exist. And that informs our lives. So this mindfulness, it's actually, this, this word in the Greek is actually is used in the Old Testament translation into the Greek about the, the feasts and festivals, right? When God installed these feasts and festivals, they were remembrances. They were calling back to mind something that really, really mattered, And that's exactly what we're to do with the resurrection. We need to call this back to mind. And and Paul clearly says here, you know what? My life right now is one of enduring. That's what was going on in Paul's life. Paul needed to endure. And maybe you need to endure in the season that you're in right now. And what this knowledge did to him, look in verse 11. This is what it did to him. This saying is trustworthy. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. This saying is trustworthy. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If his death was our death, his life is our life as well. If we endure, we will also reign with him. What what is a person who is suffering, who is in a, a trial, who's going through difficulty, need to be mindful of? Well, according to Paul, if you're mindful of the resurrection, then it, it informs your endurance. It informs you that there's coming a day when we will reign with him, the one who was raised from the dead. So no matter how much you feel like your circumstances right now are calling the shots, your diagnosis or your bad season that you're going through, it's calling the shots, the economy, people, conflicts are calling the shots in your life. Listen, they're not calling the shots. And you're going to reign with Christ. That day is coming. You are going to reign with with Christ. So this is one of those hang in there. Because of the resurrection, you overcome, you win in the end. But just like then and today, this might not be the most important thing that people are paying attention to. Right? Back then there was other information that captured people's attention. So we keep reading here as Paul writes to Timothy verse 14, he picks up another one of those amnesia words. He says, "Remind them of these things, these things, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection's already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. And in verse, well, skip that verse. 
What's interesting here is there's other stuff available to you to fill your head with. And it was for them too. This news of the resurrection, this celebration of the resurrection, this word that we were supposed to remind ourselves of and fill our hearts and our minds with, it competes with, well, other descriptions here, words, irreverent babble, and talk. Words, irreverent babble, and talk. Okay, warning, warning. At some point, as you walk with God and you're part of a church, other information is going to begin to crowd out the conversation and the emphasis in a church setting and things like the doctrine of the resurrection and the atonement and things that truly, truly matter at a unique level will get pushed to the side. And other things will begin to be the talk of the day. Things that people are really curious about and very interested in. And isn't it interesting that this stuff spreads like gangrene? The resurrection doesn't spread like gangrene. The atonement doesn't spread like gangrene. The forgiveness of our sins, the reconciliation to God, that doesn't spread like gangrene. But this stuff, this, this babble, irreverent babble, this talk, this stuff spreads like gangrene by people like Hymenaeus and Philetus. And apparently, apparently this isn't the first time that they've needed to be addressed. Right? Hymenaeus has been in the church, right? If we were to back up to 1 Timothy, where Paul has previously written to Timothy, we'd find these words in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. Paul, again, urging awareness, says, I urge, as I urged you, Timothy, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. All right, so there's a stewardship. There's a body of information, the resurrection being a cornerstone of it, that you and I are to be stewards of. In your life, this is not just a pastoral responsibility. It's not just a preacher responsibility. This is your responsibility as a Christian to know where to put information in your life. Information's coming to you. What do you promote to being worthy of consideration, worthy of discussion? What's the buzz going to be like in the church? Well, you're responsible for that. But you don't just let it turn into these words of babble. So he says, we have this stewardship from God that's by faith. He says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions. Vain discussions. And he goes on and he says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. All right, so all right, here, here's the church setting. A little, a little bit different nuance. The things that they were majoring in, focusing in, and discussing, they had their own flavor, and it sat under some kind of a category called vain discussion. Right? So you've, you've got this amazing news available 
of the person and work of Christ, his life that he lived, his death that he went through for us, and this resurrection into a new life that exists for us to discuss. And then you've got vain discussions. You've got stuff that you can talk about that doesn't match in importance a healthy discussion of the resurrection. That was true then. That is true now. And, and here, here's a great warning. Right? Vain discussions of, of lesser things in this passage, it leads, when you just let it find its path, it leads to shipwrecked faith. That's what happens to these people. They have made shipwreck of their faith by taking lesser things and promoting them to important things. So they were aware of stuff that was of lesser importance and they filled their lives and their conversation with that stuff. And at some point when they needed their faith to leap out at them and scream out at them about the person and work of Jesus Christ and how mighty he was and how sure your future was and how confident you could be that God was at work on your behalf and you could endure the difficulty of the season that would come. The day they needed that, they didn't have it because they devoted themselves to vain discussions. If there ever was an age of vain discussions, it is today. You and I live in an age of vain discussions. So much that is eternally meaningless is everyday critical, isn't it? In the culture, we just know so much about stuff that just doesn't matter at all. We know statistics about people who played sports and chased moving balls flying through the air. And we can tell you their history and where they came from and what college they went to and how many points they scored and the one game that was unusual above every other game ever played by anybody else. It's, and listen, I'm, I'm a sports guy. I love sports. But you know, I got so much brain space, you know? I fill my mind with that stuff. And whatever else, you know, stuff that you might be into. You know, maybe it's the political scene. Maybe it's just entertainment, right? The latest entertaining way of looking at something. Entertaining way of looking at life. Entertain, just something that kind of entertains us. We just fill our minds with that. And listen, it, if I'm filling my mind with the resurrection, maybe I do have some room for that kind of stuff. Fine. But, but when it begins to push the news of the resurrection, the significance of it to the side, it's a problem. Because, you know, when I go through my season of endurance and difficulty in life, there is no ball player statistics that will rescue me in that moment. I'm not going to be in a season of despair and doubt and, and believing my world is going to come crashing in and become horrible and go, yeah, but I remember that night Jordan scored 67. <laughs> oh, that makes me feel so much better, doesn't it? That's vain information, useless information in that moment. And if it comes at the expense of information that needed to rescue me in that moment, the news of the resurrection. Listen, even in the church, there's a lot of vain discussion in the church today. If you look at a lot of what's being published out there, a lot of what's being promoted and applauded, what's in sort of the broadcast parts of Christianity, 
you know, how much of is it, is it about the person and work of Jesus Christ? And pay careful attention to this. And how much of it is it about you and your potential? You dreaming your dreams and living your life and fulfilling your destiny. You being prosperous. You being healed. You experiencing health in your body and all kinds of money in your accounts and, and all these blessings and how to use faith like a weapon and get life to become what you've wanted it to be. How much of any of that stuff is about Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did and the news of the resurrection. So we get really, really thin and shallow and really understanding who he is and what he's done. We get really, really big about prosperity and what I can have and me fulfilling my destiny. And God wants me to be big and God wants me to be great. <clears throat> it's coming a day when you're going to need this information. And unfortunately, you're going to have that information. And in that moment, your faith is going to be shipwrecked. Because you, you're not called to put your faith in that stuff. And some of it's biblical. It just doesn't ascend to, to the level of these things that Paul keeps reminding Timothy about. These things. This resurrection is significant. Like nothing else in our lives. And how well informed are we about this? And let me just add one more vain discussion. And this is a conversation you have with yourself on a regular basis. And you know the details of that. Only you could, could pull up the, the videotape reel that's in your head about the vain discussions that go on on a daily basis that no one knows you're having. You know you're having them. Things you rehearse. Things you daydream about. Things you remember. Things that you are still trying to undo in your life because somebody said something to you. Somebody said you were fat when you were little. And you've lived the rest of your life trying to shake that. Like somebody glued that to you somehow. And it just kind of, it took on its own life. And that just kind of became something you're always managing. You're always interacting with it. Somebody harmed you at some point. Several people harmed you at some point in your life and you developed this, this victimization mindset. Listen, if you have a victimization mindset, you got a lot of tape that can be replayed. Because what you do is you constantly rehearse and remember what somebody else did wrong to you, what somebody else did wrong. And, and, then, and then when somebody else comes along and they do something wrong, see, them too. And you live long enough and you got this long line, like a concession stand of people one after another have done something wrong to you. And, and you know, the people you're going to meet today, maybe you'll meet somebody for the first time today. I promise you they'll be in that line. Just give yourself some time. <laughs> you'll stick them in line with everybody else who's done something wrong to you because you have trained yourself to see yourself as a victim. Can I just break news to every victim in the room here? Everybody's a victim. Where did all that get started? A little place called the Garden of Eden. In that moment, humanity became the victim of somebody else's decision. Listen, I didn't, Eve didn't consult me. Keith, you know, how would you feel about living in a fallen world where everything's difficult and everything's broken and it's full of heartache? And, you know, 
how, how would I feel about that? I, no one asked me. But here I am, living in Eve's decision. Everybody's a victim. Eve did wrong. Adam did wrong. Cain killed Abel. Everybody does wrong. But is that supposed to be the discussion going on in the back of your head? You know, some of us, you know, we, we have that, you're con, you know, you get in a conflict with somebody. Some people are really good with conflicts in the, in the sense that they can, they can deal with conflict right there in the moment. So conflict pops up, you know, wordsmith can go to work. By the time we're done, you're about two inches high. I've just cut you down to pieces and walk away from the conversation. I'm done. That person might be the kind of person that's like, it's going to take me two days to think of comebacks. Two days. <laughs> so for the next two days, the tapes running in the back of their mind are, they said, they said, what should I have said? I should have said, oh, why didn't I think of that then? Right? And so you just can't wait to see them again. But then again, the moment's not right. And you don't ever get to play those tapes in live. But you did all this rehearsing. You used a precious mind space to think on this stuff. You reminded yourself of these things instead of things that really, really mattered. All right, so that's, that's still true. But listen to what the, Charles Spurgeon says about these guys back in the first century. Referring to the resurrection, he says, even in Paul's day, this tendency was manifest. Seeking a recondite meaning, in other words, a meaning that's hidden or a, a deeper meaning. Things. There's a deeper meaning here. They overlook the fact itself, losing the substance in a foolish preference for the shadow. While God set before them glorious events that fill heaven with amazement, they showed their foolish wisdom by accepting the plain historical facts as myths to be interpreted or riddles to be solved. This is what they thought of the resurrection. Among men, there is still a craving after new things, refinements upon old doctrines and spiritualizations of literal facts. They tear out the heart of the truth and give us the carcass, stuffed with hypothesis, speculations, larger hopes. The Apostle Paul was very anxious that Timothy, at least, should stand firm to the old witness and should understand in their plain meaning his testimonies to the fact that Jesus Christ of the seed of David rose again from the dead. Look, whatever else people are saying around you, Timothy, whatever else they're celebrating, whatever twisted ideas, doctrinal or otherwise, remember this, call to mind, be mindful of this, Timothy. Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Make sure you get that straight. Listen, back then they, they had a way of shoving that to the side and today we have a way of shoving it to the side. So whether our approach is a first century approach to spiritualize the resurrection, to speak of it allegorically, or whether it's just to minimize it and shove it to the side while we get all caught up in vain things, the effect is the same. We've minimized what we have needed to remember. True for us, true for them as well. Listen, Charles Spurgeon goes on and he says, upon the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, our salvation hinges he who believes these truths aright hath believed the gospel. But men want novelties. They crave some fresh fantasia every day. The gospel with variations is the music for them. 
incarnate deity, a holy life, an atoning death, and a literal resurrection? Having heard these things now for nearly 19 centuries, they are just a little stale. And the cultivated mind hungers for a change from the old-fashioned manna. You know, what is it? You know, I don't, you came in here today, you kind of knew you had suspicion, if you thought at all, about what would be happening preaching-wise in here today. It'd probably be about the resurrection. It's Easter Sunday. But what, what could I talk about today that you'd get really jazzed about? You'd get really, really animated. I'd be pressing your buttons. You'd just be all over that. I mean, you'd sit at the edge of the seat, you'd laugh at all the jokes, and you'd say, yeah, yeah, they, <laughs> like that really matters. So if I reach into a doctrine box and I pull out the atonement, does that jazz you up? Person of Jesus Christ, God himself wrapped in human flesh, pouring out his blood unto death for the purpose of forgiving our sins and restoring us to God. Then going for three days into the earth, into the black hole, no one knowing for sure whether he's coming back. Except on the third day, something happens that no one can explain. Life comes out of death. And good news is now proclaimed. I mean, you get jazzed about that? Does, does that make everything else in your, in your world kind of get small and go, oh, whew, that's right, man, thank you. Everything else, no big deal. Or is it kind of like, hey, man, can you, can you talk about, you know, how I can have all my dreams, man? Can you just, like, you know, help me feel better about me right now? There's something really, really good about feeling bad about you. Is that it makes you look for a solution to you. Listen, I, I, I don't foresee this ever happening. If you're waiting for the day that you're going to come into this church and, and all we do is try to make you feel good about yourself... I just don't see that happening. <laughs> and here's, here's the awkward thing we're going to see in this, in this, what God has done today, is the Bible's more wanting to make you feel good about what Jesus did than it is wanting to make you feel good about what you've done. And I know that you know, America could give a rip about what I just said. And quite honestly, quite a bit of the American church could give a rip about what I just said. Because quite a bit of church has just turned into how to make people feel better about themselves. There is a remedy for whatever it is that I feel bad about. There is a remedy but it's not based in what I do or have done or ever will do. As much as I'd love for it to be, because that would make me think I'm awesome. You know, if there's something that I've done that's made my life turn into something that's really valuable and really great, I could feel good about me in that category. But the Bible's quest is not from Genesis to Revelation to try and get me to feel good about me. It's trying to get me to worship God and feel good about him and what he is and what he's done. So you see, the resurrection is something God did, isn't it? You understand you had nothing to do with the resurrection? You're not even an asterisk. You're not a footnote. You're nothing. You and I, it wasn't like we helped 
push Jesus up out of the grave and we didn't cheer him on. None of that. It's just God's doing of a miraculous event that you and I get to get jazzed about. All right, let me do this real quick. I know I've just got a short time here. What if we were aware of the resurrection at a significant level? What if you and I really did <clears throat> become mindful of the resurrection? What if our meditation and our contemplation and our consideration was oriented toward the resurrection? Well, here's what I would say this awareness would produce. First, awareness of the resurrection brings awareness of our preceding condition of death. Right? This is an obvious one, but nothing gets resurrected unless it's dead. So, who? Easter, the resurrection. Well, this is, you know, again, do you feel good about death? Do you feel good about on your way to being dead? Do you feel good about actually being called dead right now? You feel good about that? Well, but that is who you are, right? That's the reality. But you can only celebrate the resurrection if you are aware of death. Death is a real thing. And you go, oh, but I don't like that. That's why I don't like coming to this church. <clears throat> just, just tell us about the, the feel-good stuff, you know, the sunrise service and the stone is rolled away. Well, all that stuff happened because of something called death was existing. Kenneth Samples wrote a book called Seven Truths That Changed the World. He said, what is it about death that frightens people so much? Philosopher Stephen Davis offers six reasons for humankind's fear of death. One, death is inevitable. Two, death is mysterious. Three, death must be faced alone. Four, death separates us from our loved ones. Five, death puts an end to our hopes and aims. Six, death ends in oblivion. Some might characterize the human condition as being stalked by death. Death is a constant companion. It's not a matter of if, but only when. Each new day is fortuitous, but also ominous. It's one day closer to that which is even more certain than taxes. The final end. So as much as, you know, I look forward to today. <clears throat> look forward to being together with my family and, and, and catching up and celebrating together. I look forward to that. But there is that dual other side of the coin, isn't there? When today passes, I am one day closer to death. Death took a whole one day step toward me and gained ground. You recognize death never loses ground? You don't ever push it away from you. There's nothing you can do to make it back up. It is coming. Tim Keller says this, the ancient Greek philosophers believed that the very purpose of philosophy was to discover how to face evil, suffering, and death well. Why? Because well, suffering and death takes away the loves, joys, and comforts that we rely on to give life meaning. How can we maintain our poise <clears throat> or even our peace and joy when that happens? The answer is that we can do that <clears throat> excuse me, only if we locate our meaning in things that can't be touched by death. 
Now, how do, you, how do you know to pick up the things that are meaningful to you and that your life is based upon them and relocate them if you're not aware of death? Now, death's not a pleasant subject, but you're gonna leave your stuff right there where the termites are gonna eat it and destroy it. And you're gonna turn your back on it and it's gonna be useless until death informs you, I'm on my way. I'll be there shortly. All of a sudden, you start looking around and going, okay, well, when death gets here, what's it going to take from me? That's the right question. And you don't just ask that question when the doctor says you got a week to live. If you're living your life meaningfully, you're asking it now because death is a reality. It's part of our lives. He goes on and he says, but that means locating the answers to the questions, what is human life for? And what should I be spending my time doing here in things that suffering and death cannot destroy, right? Young and old, young especially, what, what are you investing yourself in? Investing, you know, put yourself in. You know, I want to build this. I want to accomplish this. I want to build my reputation. I want to become, just a quick question. When death comes for that, what will it do to that in your life? Will that survive death? Will death be able to touch that? Will death take it? Will your reputation be gone? All that work, all that manipulation, gone. Listen, you can keep building if you want, but in the back of your mind, you know you're building something empty and meaningless. Because if death can take it, ultimately, death will take it. And if you know you're going to lose it, you know that now, don't you? And that haunts you. And you can build your paper house if you want, but it's just going to collapse. It can't sustain the life that you're after. Listen, even if we locate death at the end of our lives, the Bible actually locates death right now today in our experience here. In a way, the Bible says, you know, you, you need to physically be resurrected, but you also need a spiritual resurrection because spiritually you're dead. There's a condition in your life, spiritually, the inside of you, the part of you that, that is, was intended to commune with God is broken and severed. And so you're dead spiritually. You're cut off from God spiritually. Ephesians chapter two says it this way. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This, this is actually the beginning of the walking dead in their show called that, walking dead. <clears throat> this is where that comes from. You were dead, but yet you, were, you once walked following the course of this world, living in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All that stuff you were doing, all that chasing after passions, all that enslavement to temptations that kept taking you down a road and wrecking relationships and exposing you to something that was gonna destroy you and consume you, all that stuff, that was your version of being dead. You were dead when you were doing that. Well, how, do you, how are you dead and doing all at the same time? Well, I'm just telling you the facts. I can't explain all of it. According to God, you were doing that, and you were dead. And in God's sense of the word dead, you were cut off from him. Because death is more about separation than it is about ceasing to exist in Scripture. 
So you were dead because you were cut off from God. You were alienated from the life of God. You didn't have his life. You didn't have the spiritual life of God in you. That's what you were dead to. And when you're dead that way, you chase after all kinds of passions and all kinds of physical pleasures and all kinds of pursuits. And whatever it is that's out there that can reward this piece of me temporarily until death finishes me off. But how empty does that stuff feel? Because you know, when you do a quick little audit, you know death's going to take all that from you too. And hauntingly, this verse says, in that dead condition, you were by nature children of wrath. Whose wrath? Your next door neighbor's wrath? The person you pulled out in traffic? Is that what this Bible verse is about? Angry people? No, this is about the wrath of God. That God one day will pour out his wrath, his response to sin, his righteous judgment against sin. So all that time that you and I were alive and, quote, alive, doing stuff, we were alienated from God and we would one day face him in judgment. So even though we were alive, we were actually dead. See, the the great resurrection is only for those who are aware that they're dead. So hopefully, you know, most of you here have come to that place where you're aware spiritually. I'm aware I'm cut off from God. I need God. I'm in this condition of death. And one day, I'm going to need an exit strategy from this world. Because I'm not staying here forever. No one has. Are you ready for that day? Resurrection is what makes us ready for that day. I'll give me a couple more thoughts here. Awareness of the resurrection brings awareness, listen carefully, of our justification in right standing with God. And this is where I get this from. Romans chapter 1, verse 3. It says, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is declared by God to be his son by the resurrection. It's a pretty significant declaration, pretty significant event. Romans 4, 25 goes on and says, speaking of Jesus who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So he's delivered over because of our sins to death, but he is raised for our justification. That's a big fancy word, justification. How many of you guys are feeling particularly justified right now? What does that word even mean? Justification, it's it's a wonderful theological word, but it's not something that we use often. It, It simply has to do with your right standing with God. If I were just to throw that question out at you this morning, how's your standing with God today? Do you have a right standing with God today? I mean, where would you go with that? If you'd asked me that at some point in my life, asked many people that, I'd probably start shopping around for how, how have I behaved lately? What have I done that nobody knows that I've done? Right, so I would find in, where would I find? In me, 
the reasons for me to feel right about how God feels about me. So if, you know, if I, I don't know, just came back from a missions trip, I just made a big donation, I've just been sacrificing all kinds of time, I turned down a big job so that I could do something that was of lesser financial value, but, you know, beneficial to others in some way, and, you know, I'm feeling pretty good about me, so how do I feel God feels about me? Well, you know, I, I, I think okay, I think pretty good. Nothing to do with Jesus, though, does that? And this verse says that he was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. Right, so, so something happened in this resurrection. Right? I think I wrote this in your outline. Jesus' life, death, and personhood was, was stamped, accepted by the resurrection. I mean, let's face it. If Jesus goes into the black hole of death and never comes back out, anybody here certain that he was on a mission from God? He claimed that he was. Matter of fact, he claimed that he was dying for our sins, that somehow he was taking our sins with him to the cross and volunteering to pay for them. And then he goes into the black hole and never comes back out. Did he pay for them or not? Well, I don't know. He said he would. Well, maybe he's just like any other guy who died, who promised all kinds of cool stuff. Did he really do it or not? Well, I don't know. How do you know that Jesus' ministry really was from God? How do you know that he really did accomplish all these things that he claimed that he accomplished? The resurrection. Because Jesus, in his power, if you will, goes into the grave. It's the power of God that reaches into that and says, nope, still alive. I validate everything about what you've done and everything about who you are. That's what the resurrection does. So it's got this big stamp over it from heaven. You know, it's like this invisible stamp came from heaven on the day of the resurrection. Stamped it. Accepted. Valid. That works in heaven. That's what the resurrection did. Paying for our sins and reconciling us to the Father has been fully accomplished. We have right standing and acceptance and forever affection and validation with God. Can you hold on to that thought? We have that. We have right standing and acceptance and forever affection and validation with God. That's what it means for him to be raised for our justification. That fancy word justification, it means what we just read. We are right with God. But can I just be honest? There is this plague, even in Christianity, this sad plague of people trying to find something in their life that they feel right about themselves about. Spend all their efforts, work really hard, try and fit in so that they can feel like they've done something that makes them feel right about them. Do you, do you understand that to get right with God is never going to be about what you did. It's about what he did. His life, his death, and his resurrection is what justifies us and makes God's affections flow toward us. It's not about you having a good day or a bad day. It's not about you being awesome or awful. It's about what somebody else did on your behalf. 
Why can't we just be okay with that? Why can't we just love that? Charles Spurgeon, he said this, seeking a recondite meaning or just a different meaning, they overlook the fact itself, losing the substance in a foolish preference for the shadow. You and I want to feel accepted. We want to feel validated. But we're willing to work our butts off to get that feeling from the shadows, from people from places, from things that we do, rather than getting it from the substance. Listen, what your soul is really, really, really after is to have God look you in the face and say, I'm okay with you. I'm more than okay with you. I love you and you're mine. And God's affections are toward you and you've been restored and he is for you. There's something in your soul that longs for that, but what we do is we pick it up and we steal that from God and we give it to other people. So you tell me that about me. Go ahead. Tell me that. Tell me, tell me you're pleased with me. Tell me I've done something acceptable. Tell me my performance has met your standard. It's a shadow. It's a self-justification. Listen, there, and there are real categories. Christians will live in these real categories. Anybody ever joined the Righteous Parent Club? Right, I pick on this one because... In the church, we, we applaud certain things, rightly so. We applaud marriage. We, we applaud parenting and being responsible and raising your children, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're not careful, you, you can turn that into what, you know, the righteous parent club. And it becomes all about what you're doing as a parent, what you're doing as a parent, and whether you feel good about what you're doing, and whether other people who are noticing what you're doing feel good about what you're doing, whether they talk about what you're doing. Whether they applaud what you're doing. Whether they make you feel right about yourself because, you know, you're doing something that matters. And if you're not careful, that becomes what makes you feel right about yourself. Listen, you know, probably a long point to develop, but I want to chase it. But in this church, there are parents who are doing an amazing job of parenting their children. Please don't ever let that turn into why you feel right about yourself. And seated right near you are people who feel like they've done a horrible job of raising their children. And they live in the regret of things that they did or didn't do. And neither one of you qualifies for anything that the resurrection did for you. Or disqualifies you from it. Some of us have joined the insecurity club. We're just insecure about whoever it is that we are, whatever it is that we're like, our mannerisms, our ideas, our behaviors. We're just insecure about that. And so we just shop for a group to belong to, to fit into. And we ascribe to people's values and ideas. And like, if, if, if I'll measure up to whatever it is this little group is about, if I'll measure up to that, then I, I feel right about me. Do you understand what you're doing in that moment? You are robbing from God his ability, and his right to justify you. And you're trying to find a reason in you to be justified. And it's a laborious, miserable experience once you start down that road, trying to get everybody else to make you feel right about you. Don't do that to people. They can't make you feel right about you. Don't obligate them to. There's a healthy place. Now, I'll say this carefully. There's a healthy place for me or any individual here to be able to say, I don't give a rip about what you think about me. Now, the only problem with that 
is most of us say that because we're so frustrated and so angry that I can't get you to say about me what I want you to say. That now I'm just fed up to hear and I want to throw up and I'm just, ooh, I'm so, I don't give a rip about what you think about me. Well, no, Keith, the truth is it's like an idol in your life and you can't stand the idea that anybody doesn't think well of you. And now you're angry and frustrated about it. I can tell the way you said it. That's the truth. But there is this place when I know that the resurrection has justified me before the one who matters and the one who my heart longs for the most to be able to stand and say, I know what he thinks about me. I don't really care what you think about me. Well, be careful while you're saying that. Anybody ever want to join the cool dude club? Right? Young girls, you want to fit in in school, you know? Got to join the cool girl club. You got to behave a certain way, right? And if they, they respond to you well, then you get to feel like you're something. You know, you athletes, you guys, you, know, you want to fit in. You want to be something on the field. You want to be noticed for something. Or maybe you just want to be the funniest guy in the room. You know, whatever it is that you're into, those begin to be things that make you feel good about who you are. And other people take on the task of being the ones that make you feel right about whoever you are. Do you understand we're robbing God and we're settling for the shadow rather than the substance? What the resurrection, this all comes from meditating on the resurrection. The resurrection is my justification. Resurrection is God's act that said, I accept Keith, you in Christ, I accept you. I accept you the way I accept my own son. I accept you. I am for you the way I'm for my own son. But I need to hear God say that. I don't know about you. Do you need to hear God say that? It'll make me a whole lot less dependent on making my wife say it in just the right way or my children or anybody else that's in my world. All right, I'm out of time. But I'm not out of notes, which is a problem. Listen, let me, let me just, there's a couple other things there. There's awareness. Awareness of the resurrection does something about, let me just use this last one here. It does something about relocating our address. It, it transfers our life to our permanent address mentally. It helps me to not live for just right here. Colossians says, if then... You've been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Right? What the resurrection tells me is that, you know, Jesus lived this earthly existence he died in this setting and he was resurrected to a heavenly reality and my life is in him. And temporarily my feet are touching planet earth. But permanently my life is with him. So, so here's the great value question that when I leave here today and when I get busy this week coming up, am I thinking like my life is here? Bound up in my stuff, bound up in things going a certain way, bound up in the rewards of things temporarily here? Or am I convinced because of the resurrection that there's, there's an eternal life in another place? I've got another address. I, I need to be going ahead and loading the U-Haul and sending it on ahead. 
Do I live my life like that's permanently who I am and where I'm going to be? Because if I don't do that, listen, life here becomes a little bit of a task to live only for what's here in our lives. And let me, let me finish with this thought. Eric, you can go ahead and come back up here. In the category of awareness, the resurrection is what God has done, not what I've done. Resurrection is what God has done, that we receive by faith. And let me me just consider just for a moment. You're here this morning, and what the resurrection maybe has done for you this morning is put you in touch with your condition, your right now condition, the condition of death, the condition of living life with a sense that I don't feel connected with God. I don't feel like I ever hear God speak to me or tell me that he's for me or that he loves me. I, I don't know if I've got that kind of relationship that you're describing. I don't, I don't know that I feel reconciled to God. I feel distant from God. Listen, that's, that's a condition of death. You can be here this morning and, and really, truly be alive on the outside and dead on the inside. And what a great, terrible tragedy. If you stay in death, can I just tell you, no matter what you do today, whether you bust open eggs, eat chocolate bunnies, or hang out with your family, or read the Bible, you're not celebrating the resurrection. Because the resurrection is an escape from death unto life. Well, how do I do that? Well, you... You receive what Christ did for you by faith. You you open up sort of the faith basket of your heart. You say, Jesus Christ, I recognize your life. You came here. You were God himself, robed in humanity. You lived a perfect, sinless life. You went to a cross where God mysteriously put the sins of guilty humans on you and then took your life in payment and punishment for those sins. And you entered into death. Three days later, you came out of death with a life that you will now give away to anyone who will call upon you. I'm calling upon you. God, give me that life. Give to me the life that you purchased for me, the resurrected life. Give it to me today. Listen, that's how you celebrate the resurrection. And if you're here this morning and Maybe, maybe you've never done that. Maybe you've never in your own words and in your heart done what I just described. Recognize who Jesus Christ is and what he did and opened your heart and said, forgive me and give me your life. I surrender mine to you. Listen, if you've never done that this morning, can I just ask everybody here just to, to bow your heads for a moment? You want to really celebrate Easter. This is what God, who invented Easter, did it for. He did it because we needed life. And he did whatever it took to break down a dividing wall of sin and rescue us from this condition of death. A death that's coming physically, but a death that we know right now exists our own hearts and lives spiritually
God is here this morning to make this story real for you. God is here this morning to fill the place that's felt dead and empty, to give you his life. If you'd like to receive that life, I'm just going to invite you to pray this prayer with me. You speak this to God. Say, Lord Jesus, today I recognize my great need for you. I recognize my own condition, my emptiness, my distance from you, sense of disconnection from you. I recognize there's nothing I can do to fix that. But you already did something to fix that. You sent your son. He was clothed as a man. He lived a perfect life that I could never live, but he did. He died a death to take the penalty from my sins. And then you raised him from the dead. You gave him new life so that he could give new life to me. This morning, I ask for you to give me that new life. Whoever I am and whatever I am, I surrender to you. I give you my life. Give me yours. I turn away from doing life my own way for my own reasons, and I want to know you. And I want to live life for you. So here this morning, Easter 2016, celebration of the new life in Jesus Christ, I open my heart and I receive your life into my life. In Jesus' name. Let's, let's, stand, let's stand together and as we close in song. Maybe there's some lesser things that have been crowding into your minds this morning, this week, things that are pressing on you, things that threaten you, things that make you concerned. Can, can you let the resurrection do this? Can you let it crawl into your mind? Can you let it fill your mind and do this to those? Hey, move over. Move over. Go, go sit over there for a bit. And can you give the stage of your mind to the resurrection, to this awareness of what has happened and what that means for us today. Let's be aware. Let's sing this song, Aware of the Resurrection. Amen. The greatest day in history. Death is beaten, you have rescued me. Sing it out, Jesus is alive. Empty cross, the empty grave. Life eternal, you have won the day. Shout it out, Jesus is alive. He's alive. Oh, happy day. 
Amen. Amen. You guys have a wonderful day with your families celebrating risen Savior.